Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. My name is Alex, and I'm MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Justin Norton. He's a partner at GSR Ventures, where he focuses on early stage investments in digital health, AI, machine learning and healthcare, and enterprise technology. Justin received his MD from Stanford University School of Medicine, his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, a master's in computational biology from the University of Cambridge, and a bachelor's degree in computer science from Carleton College. Justin, thank you so much for joining the, the podcast. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. Appreciate it. Fantastic. So Justin, you have such a fascinating journey and background. So you come from a family of physicians, but you always had interest beyond medicine. Um, so to put things into perspective for our listeners, can you give us a summary of your early life story? How did you decide to go into medical school? And how did your interests in computer science and computational biology come about? Absolutely. So yeah, as you, as you mentioned, grew up in a family of physicians. Father was a physician. My mom was not. She was in business, but her family, three of her siblings were also physicians. So you know, science and interest in medicine was always you know, something around the table early on. Uh, with that, though, I grew up in Seattle you know, under kind of the auspices of Microsoft and what technology could do, what scale could do with the company, and how you could really change the world uh, with technology. And so kind of those two interests were really always present for me from day one. Interestingly, I never thought I would combine them. Technology for me was kind of always this hobby, you know, build my own computer, that type of thing growing up, you know, played a, a few video games uh, back in the day. Uh, but medicine was kind of always where I thought I would go. Um, so choosing to, you know, study and focus on science in high school, then through college, uh, was planning to be a physician the entire time. You know, obviously you have the early exposures, you check yourself by shadowing and doing research and understanding if this really is the field for me. And that, that really was what I thought um, through my undergraduate experience. Uh, with that said, in undergrad, I had the fortune uh, to work and take an early computer science course. Again, this is mostly out of just a hobby or interest. Um, and was very fortunate to find an advisor who pushed me to say, hey, Justin, seems like you like this, seems like it's fun, you should really think about pursuing this you know, as your major. Uh, initially, at the time, I told him, that's crazy. It doesn't overlap with medicine at all. It's not useful. I should study chemistry or biology or something. But um, just kind of out of interest, decided, hey, I'll double down on my interest in computer science and see where that might go. Um, from there, uh, like yourself, decided to actually go out to the UK to pursue a master's in computational biology. For me, that was the simplest segue to combine this interest in biology and interest in data science and technology. Um, and then from there, you know, getting to come to Stanford uh, was just kind of the culmination of, you know, having this data science background and technology, getting to pursue that and look at that through medical training. Justin, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing your story. And I also come from a family of medical doctors. And I think like w while growing up, being surrounded by like multiple relatives who are medical doctors and like their friends who are medical doctors as well, like you tend to feel that there is like only one way like you can go and, and kind of there's like only one view of the world, which is like to do medicine. But I think I really appreciated like one of the points that you've mentioned be before we started the recording around like, do not let everyone like force you into a box. And like, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about your journey and trajectory. So that is super fascinating and interesting. 
And I guess I want to switch gears a little bit around your experience with GSR and especially what's happening in digital health with the pandemic. Um, so a good proportion of the time that you spent with GSR has been under the pandemic. Like we've seen massive developments in digital health during the pandemic, like so much money is going into the space. I was reading a report from Rock Health that talked about how the funding has doubled in the last year in the space of digital health. Like we're seeing digital therapeutics maturing, all of these really interesting changes in the space. So I'm really curious to know how has COVID impacted the framework of investment that you have personally or that your fund has personally around digital health? Absolutely. So interestingly, you know, we've been investing in digital health at GSR Ventures since around 2016, when from us, our team of physicians and technologists, which actually pretty similar backgrounds to myself, said, hey, this field looks like it's finally ready. While healthcare has been very reticent and very slow to adopt technology, to us, it looked like the infrastructure was finally there. With that said, you know, from 2016 until pre-pandemic, you know, digital health was growing. If you look at the Rock Health reports, investment continued to increase year over year. But the pandemic really unlocked a wave of adoption um, and really digital health becoming front and center for both patients, physicians, everyone around the table. You know, prior to that, right, you had telemedicine visits, you know, in the single digit percentages. You know, most people never having used it, physicians not wanting it, saying it's not the same. You know, my previous work at Stanford in our Center for Digital Health, we looked at, we launched some of the first telemedicine visits out of Epic. Uh, we launched uh, ClickWell Care, which is an ACO taking care of the Stanford uh, medicine population. And you know, ultimately shut it down. It was kind of too soon. While things like mental health, people really wanted uh, and really preferred virtually, people still weren't used to interacting in this virtual environment. COVID has really changed that. You know, it's really shown us that virtual care we can deliver. Now it's not for everything, but it does work and it is a great substitute and it should be a tool in everyone's arsenal. Now there's some incentives and things we have to fix and think about as a system broadly, um, but it really showed us that these digital health tools are here to stay it's no longer something fringe. It really is going to be a mainstream uh, place where people are going to practice and you know, receive some of their health care. With all that said, for us at GSR Ventures, fundamentally, our thesis actually hasn't changed at all um, from where how we're, how we're investing in digital health. Fundamentally, for us, we're looking for where can we use new technologies, AI, data science to fundamentally change how we're delivering care and making that possible. Again, not looking for a 10, 20% improvement, but really two, three, 10, if not 100x improvements in efficiency or quality of care. Now, COVID has really just accelerated the adoption of these technologies. And I think has added many, many people looking to join the field saying, hey, digital health is here to stay. This is what's happening. So from a very practical perspective, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur in digital health. This is no longer fringe. This is now mainstream where you can go raise money either from a health technology-focused investor or a technology investor at large. Many people have jumped in to investing in digital health, which is why you see that doubling of capital um, moving into the market. So for us, in terms of very specifically how we're looking at deals, one of the things that we had to be careful of in the COVID era was, what is happening? Is the increase in the adoption of this technology, is this just due to an immediate COVID spike, take something around testing? or visits like that? Or is this really part of a longer term trend that is fundamentally kind of changing how we're, how we're making things possible? So one company, for example, a company called Medable, um, delivering decentralized clinical trials, uh, we invested in just before the pandemic. Now, this is a company you can think about it almost a little bit like telemedicine. Now we're allowing patients to sign up for clinical trials in a much more distributed fashion, not just getting people right next to an academic center making that possible today. Now, while telemedicine visits have gone up, 
and spiked down um, after people have uh, hospital systems realize, you know, revenue is different uh, when people are doing telemedicine. You can't add auxiliary tests and things like that. So there's been a pressure to bring people back to the hospital. Meanwhile, in clinical trials, that is not the case. Uh, clinical trials in this technology to decentralize where trials are happening is really here to stay. Adoption has only continued to increase uh, with things like that. So for COVID, how it's really impacted us is we're just being more thoughtful. You know, what is the impetus if we do see a startup with some increase in revenue, increase in numbers? Is this just due to COVID or is this part of a larger trend um, where that excites us about where technology and healthcare is going? Yeah, Justin, that's actually a great point. And I think like one of the things that I think about is if we compare a doctor's office today to a doctor's office 100 years ago, like there is not that massive changes except for like new kind of couple of new devices. But like there is so much of the care pathways today that are not digitized. And I absolutely agree there is like massive opportunity about the space. And I really like the way you describe looking at these investments in terms of is this actually a temporary change or is this a permanent change? So in one of the pieces, in a piece published in Vatter earlier this year, uh, titled Digital Triage and the Human Touch, you've talked about how everyday emerging technologies are innovating and transforming the mental health system. You've said, I like technologies that do what our mental health care system cannot, staying close to patients 24 hours a day and intervening when patients need help. The space of prescription digital therapeutics is fascinating. The space of Telemedicine is fascinating. There's just so much happening there. And I was wondering if you can maybe share with our audience what are the most interesting technologies that you're personally super excited about, maybe like a couple and why. Sure, sure. Yeah, mental health is just such a huge area now that, you know, for years, right, has not changed. And I think it's really exciting how technology fundamentally today has an opportunity to change how we're delivering healthcare and get it to all those who need uh, mental health care today. So you mentioned prescription digital therapeutics. This is an area of active investment for us at GSR Ventures and myself personally. And I think the really exciting thing about digital therapeutics is fundamentally it changes how many patients might receive treatment from any given, any given physician or provider. Um, a lot of funding has gone into telemedicine, telemental health, which has just created uh, great access for people who may have had to travel uh, to see those providers. But fundamentally, we still have this shortage and this gap between how many providers we have and how many patients we have. While telemedicine closes a gap in terms of commuting, fundamentally, those providers don't have enough time to see all the patients in need. And that's where I, I'm personally very excited about digital therapeutics and the promise of rigorous FDA-approved interventions that can treat these patients who previously didn't have other options. Uh, so take uh, Limbix, a company in our portfolio building prescription digital therapeutics for adolescent mental health. Today, adolescent uh, mental health is one of the biggest crises our, our nation is facing. Actually, the Surgeon General just uh, published something this week on, you know, this is a huge crisis that we are not adequately treating. And when we think about our treatment options today for adolescents and mental health, you know, as a primary care provider, you can refer someone to a therapist, which might have months, if not uh, you know, years, to actually get in and someone to actually find a therapist who will, who will take them, or you, you can prescribe SSRIs, which have some pretty significant side effects uh, in adolescence, you know, potential increase in suicidality uh, due to the activation effects. So fundamentally, and parents, you know, don't want their children taking SSRIs um, in many cases. So, you know, what do we do here? You know, if we can build these digital treatment options that are able to meet these patients immediately when they need them and continue on through their journey, fundamentally, this allows us to actually treat all the patients who might need it. Now, they're not going to be for everyone. They're still very early days. 
uh, in this field. But I, I truly believe as we build these rigorous digital interventions, they will be able to treat uh, many more patients. Interestingly, in terms of uh, what you mentioned on other things I think that are really exciting, we have companies uh, like uh, Health Rhythms and others in mental health that are trying to figure out really continuous monitoring and care and understanding of these patients. Things that can operate in the background, understand when something goes wrong, uh, just like we monitor so many other things in our lives. We have sensors that monitor our cars, our planes, uh, that understand or detect when something might be a little bit off and intervene earlier. And as we see tools like this are starting to come out, understanding our phone behavior, our digital fingerprints, uh, we're going to see earlier interventions in digital health, as well as understand earlier when certain treatments we have are starting to work. So those are just a few areas in mental health that I'm really excited about going forward. Justin, this is fascinating. Thank you for sharing. And just following up on one of the points that you've mentioned previously, that it's very important to do this thorough analysis when you're looking at digital health companies. So the way Shad and I look at this is that there is a lot of, there is smart money in the space of digital health, right? Like the money that does the analysis that you've done, but there is also a lot of money that is commodity, right? That just sees growth in the space and, and goes into it. And I think because of that, like we're seeing so many digital health companies that are being created that are addressing different parts of the solution, right? And like as a medical doctor, I struggle to see that asthma patients would have like 70 apps on their phone and each app like manages a part of their care, right? Like we will not have an individual app for like the propeller health. We will not have an individual app for like their nitric oxide breath analyzer, right? So how do you see like this, the whole space evolving, especially considering that there are so many new companies in digital health that are being created that are creating only a small proportion of the solution. Very curious to know your thoughts on that. This is something people talk about all the time. We've created all of these point solutions in healthcare. And this actually happened even prior to you know, just digital health companies uh, coming out to market. I think what we're starting to see, and we've really seen over the past 12, 18 months, is as money has gone into digital health and the biggest companies have gotten very increased valuations, acquisitions have been something that's more common. So we're starting to see companies combine uh, where, you know, as a consumer, I don't want to use 12 different apps. I'd rather go to one thing that can direct me to exactly what I need. And so digital health companies are starting to respond to that and think about how they can bundle things together and make that possible. So we're starting to see acquisitions in the space much more than we saw 24 months ago of companies combining because, again, it is a better consumer experience. Now, with that said, uh, I think there is lots of space for companies to survive if they're doing something very well. So personally, how, how we see it, if you're able to take someone entirely through their care journey and really take, uh, take a disease category and treat every aspect of that patient, uh, even though you could be on a very narrow thing, so take musculoskeletal health, we're seeing companies who've really taken that branch off of traditional care and are trying to treat someone holistically to make that possible. So it's not that everything will combine or there'll be one you know, health app to rule them all, but really we have to be more thoughtful about how do patients jump between these different solutions. And if you can thoughtfully take someone throughout their entire care journey, I think there's really space uh, to stand alone as a company in the long run. Awesome. That's a great perspective. Thanks for sharing, uh, Justin. I guess to my last question, which is around the space of AI. I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of super interesting work in the space with trustworthy AI and, and all the other basically things that, that you've done in the space of, of AI. And I'm curious to know how you think about the future of AI in healthcare specifically over the next five to 10 years. 
I mean, from my academic perspective, so I'm doing my PhD in the space, working around like transfer learning and continual learning in healthcare AI. And I think we're still evaluating the performance of AI in a wrong way. Like we're measuring how the algorithm would perform on data, but that's not actually what we should be measuring. We should be measuring how the human informed by that algorithm makes better decisions than the human who is not. So I'm curious to know what's your mental model to think about the adoption of AI in the healthcare space over the next five years. Absolutely. And I think this is such an interesting space and something where, you know, I think Hype may have peaked a couple of years ago where people thought AI would change everything and immediately transform healthcare. And uh, surprise, it hasn't yet. And so one of the things I really think about um, is how will AI first come into healthcare and really where can we start augmenting how physicians and clinicians can interact? So one of the things I I like to, uh, just because of my background, I like to describe it is if we compare AI in healthcare to how it looks in autonomous vehicles. There's this gap between, do we want to augment what someone is doing? This is a driver assistance where the physician or clinician is still in control making the decisions, but AI is augmenting, offering suggestions, offering guide rails, offering boundaries to what a physician might consider versus we're trying to completely you know, do an entire robotic surgery without a, without a surgeon involved at all. Go to a level five, a fully autonomous vehicle interaction. One of the ways I think that is really important uh, that clinicians can think about AI and think about developing tools is let's not jump all the way to the end to complete automation. And let's really focus on where can we build a solution today with the data we have today that can augment and add value right now and continue to improve, as you mentioned, as we see that real world data and real world evidence for how people are using this. Rather than just say, hey, we're going to build a model on our training data at one hospital system and then hope it works as we translate things else, elsewhere, which we're starting to see in the academic literature has failed wildly in terms of the sepsis algorithms and other things like that. How can we say this is an improvement on what we do today and we're building the system to continually augment and improve our algorithm over time so we can move eventually towards you know, full automation, but we can continue to gradually increase and add value incrementally going forward. Now, it's much less exciting than, say, physicians are going to be completely automated and you're only going to see a computer. But that's where I think we need more work as a field to say, how can we incrementally add value with the technology today and continue to improve that over time? And so in certain cases, uh, you can see companies starting to do things in the background with their own systems, saying, okay, how can we add suggestions, add understanding to what a diagnosis might happen or where a patient should go or Uh, Again, how companies in other spaces are using AI, again, not shooting for complete automation, but incremental improvement and continual improvement over time. So to me, I think that's where, you know, again, it's much more exciting to talk about the full, full solution, but we need to focus on kind of at first incremental improvements that can build. Justin, I absolutely agree. And I mean, especially if we look at healthcare as a space that is very risk averse, right? Like historically, physicians are very risk averse and we need to kind of create a piecemeal approach to adoption of all these new and fascinating technologies. It's been an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot from your perspective. So thank you very much for that. Um, And I'm going to hand over to uh, my co-host, Shad, who's going to continue with a couple of questions. Over to you, Shad. Thank you so much, Alex. And thank you, Justin. This has been such a fascinating conversation been sort of just inundated with all of these sort of really cool insights that you're bringing to the table, Justin. So really appreciate it. I wanted to follow up on a couple of points that you made. I think this notion of whether something is a passing fad or whether or not it'll persist through sort of big shocks like COVID is very powerful framework to think about 
uh, potential investments. You mentioned sort of DCT companies versus telemedicine. You know, some of the loosening of the CMS regulations and payment parity regulations around telemedicine, some of that's actually being rolled back. And it's unclear where the new equilibrium will be. But of course, telemedicine is not a passing fad at all. But what I mean is, I think the new equilibrium will involve much more telemedicine post-COVID than pre-COVID, but it won't be where it was at the peak of COVID. Whereas I think DCT, for example, is just fundamentally different. It's, it's a more fundamental problem that's not necessarily tied to any one shock or regulatory shock that happened. And you also mentioned something about timing, which I think is incredibly important. Some solutions may have come too early and failed. That doesn't mean that it's not worth pursuing, but rather maybe that the ecosystem just wasn't there. So I just wanted to double down on that because I think those are very important takeaways for, for our audience members. Shifting gears here a little bit, Justin, you know, in an excellent, really excellent article you wrote for MedCity News, you, you outlined a serious problem with within healthcare investing, which is that VC funding can turn a blind eye when it comes to Medicaid. You explained that Medicaid is unfortunately not the market that most entrepreneurs think about when they're thinking about starting a company. You know, one of my HPS classmates and, and Dr. Um, Jordan Anderson, him and I have thought about an adjacent problem, uh, which is sustainable and ethical investing in the digital health space and, and how to sort of bring perhaps the rigor of biotech to an area that sometimes feels uh, like the wild, wild west. And there's often little to no ins- uh, oversight into the product development process, focus on quality and patient safety is sometimes less than in biotech. And proper clinically validated outcome studies tend to be rare as well, even though, like you said, digital health is becoming more mainstream. And certainly within the subsector of digital therapeutics, we're going to start seeing some of that structured investing and structured clinical trials. You know, all of this is very, very interesting to us. You know, can you explain a little bit more for our audience why you think there's a mismatch between VC and some of these vulnerable patient populations like Medicaid patients? And what should these companies and other stakeholders like society do to ensure that healthcare is accessible to all? Absolutely. If, if you look back, and it's unfortunately, it's not just uh, in VC, but you know, Medicaid has been a very difficult uh, problem to solve where you know, fundamentally there's less money uh, f- for these patients, uh, there's, there's less access, you know, and hospitals you know, have to figure out this balance of how do I you know, basically lose money on my Medicaid patients and, and treat others. And so when you think about, you know, entrepreneurs or where they should look or where they're being told uh, to go for exciting areas, Medicaid is not that space. You know, what we have seen, and if you look at the companies uh, that have recently gone public or will soon, companies have poured into Medicare and Medicare Advantage, where there's been money set aside, you know, there's things where you can do around billing and regulations and upcoding. And so companies have poured and investors have poured money uh, into this space uh, because it's fundamentally easier. Uh, than Medicaid. In Medicaid, you have to deal with, you know, 50 states in terms of how, you know, every plan is different. Um, patients come in and out uh, being available for, for Medicaid plans versus Medicare. And so fundamentally, it's just a harder problem to solve. Now, with that said, this is fundamentally where I get excited about what technology can do um, for uh, patient populations when you have less money available. While previously, right, if you have a finite set of resources and physicians available, Yes, if one group pays you three, five X versus another group, fundamentally to make the math work, you need to treat those patients that just fundamentally offer more value and payment. Today, when we think about how technology can augment care and we can basically increase the number of patients uh, we're able to see and treat with that same physician supply 
um, using technology to augment, all of a sudden, Medicaid becomes a much more possible um, patient population where we can kind of deliver uh, great treatments at a much, much lower cost. And when we change that cost structure, all of a sudden Medicaid uh, becomes a place where companies and startups can really innovate um, and make sure they can succeed in the long run. And so I think over the past few years, technology has continued to get better and better. And especially as digital health has become more mainstream, uh, MCOs and, uh, and Medicaid plans are more looking for digital health solutions to treat their patient populations. While, so while a number of years ago, if you told me, hey, I want to uh, build a startup targeting uh, Medicaid, I'm going to figure out all these things, I would have said, I don't know, I, don't, I haven't seen Medicaid work or you know, contract with digital health startups. It's just never happened. As digital health has become more mainstream, this is an area where plans are starting to look for digital health solutions because they need to be more creative uh, to figure out how to meet their patient population. And so I think it's a really exciting space um, that will hopefully uh, change quite a bit going forward. And not to mention just the incredible need um, to, to meet these patients that have just historically really been ignored by a lot of our healthcare system. Justin, you know, thank you for that perspective. I, I've actually never thought about it that way. You know, some of these digital therapies and some of these innovative therapies that are very well suited to a low cost sort of care model that you traditionally will see, like you said, the, the reimbursement under Medicaid and even Medicare is historically lower than commercial plans. And, and much of Medicaid is through sort of these managed care, these managed care groups. And some of those are like capitated payments that are quite low. And, and so if you can bring in some of these low cost 24-7 access to access care, you can really, really make a dent in this space, I think. You know, Justin, shifting gears here a little bit, let's talk a little bit about medical training. We can probably talk about this for hours, but, you know, I'll try to keep us to a couple of minutes. You know, a main problem facing medical training, in sort of my opinion, is that it doesn't train docs to be transformative leaders within healthcare. Of course, you know, acknowledging that the most important thing for docs to do is to heal people. You know, I think, you know, I understand that. That's a full-time job. It's a very noble job. But taking care of patients well requires effective delivery of care, innovative business models, new technologies, and much more. These all require, A, working in teams, B, systems-level thinking, and C, honestly, business acumen. I'm curious how you think medical training will change in the future. And do you think we need a radical transformation from the ground up of the MD curriculum? And how do you think that MBA curriculum shapes future healthcare leaders? And, and what can the, the MD curriculum learn from its MBA counterpart and vice versa? Absolutely. We could, we could talk about this for, for hours. I think fundamentally, you know, medical training, what is it set up to do today? It's set up to train someone. What is the basic science? Uh, what is the understanding? What are the protocols for how we how we treat our patients and fit in to the kind of siloed roles and boxes of our healthcare system today? Interestingly, when you start medical school, I think you take one of the groups of the uh, most ambitious, uh, selfless people who truly want to change the world and have done amazing things, creative things at this point into their career just to get into medical school uh, today. And then we take people through the medical school journey and push them into a box. We tell them, put your heads down, stop thinking about these interesting, innovative ideas, get your training, go into your specialty, at which point people are so in debt or so overwhelmed and barely have time to think about these new creative ideas that people have. Contrast that with, with maybe your experience at HBS or for me at Stanford at the GSB, 
where you come in. Yes, you worked on lots of interesting problems. Uh, people are amazingly impressive. But throughout the two years of the MBA, they're told, here are the tools to go change the world. Here are the tools to go create the next businesses, change how things are done, which fundamentally that message uh, becomes missing at the end of medical school training. Uh, that message becomes lost as it's told, put your head down, go into training for the next you know, three to a decade uh, of, of time, and then you know, come out and kind of fit into the system today. And so fundamentally, you know, I wish we had more physicians like yourselves trying to think outside the box, trying to think of, hey, our healthcare system is fundamentally broken, is fundamentally broken. We're not delivering the care that we can. We're not delivering the knowledge to all of our patients in an equitable way. So we need to rethink how to change the system and make things better. And I wish we had more of that in medical curriculum earlier uh, so that people at least had it in their minds as they go through the medical training. You know, that's a fantastic point. It's something I think a lot about because it's funny, you know, when I got into Cornell for medical school, I thought I had pretty good grades and, and a pretty good background. And then three or four years later, I was on the admissions committee. And just within three years, like these kids became like exponentially more impressive. And it was stunning, like how harder and harder it is just grades wise and extracurriculars wise, like how challenging it is to actually become a physician nowadays. Uh, and I completely agree. We're taking some of the brightest, most creative people and just clamping down on them. And it's wasted potential, in my opinion. And contrast that to our, my time. You, you know, you mentioned HBS and, and you went to GSB. You know, picture, let's take a little detour and let's picture, you know, New York City in the 1970s. You know, that was the birthplace and era for punk music, hip hop and salsa music. I sometimes think about this. Did that just happen because New York City just has most creative people in the world? Probably not. I think it happened because you had, you know, New York City was professionally, ethnically, you know, and in many, many other ways, just the most diverse place in the world. You had all of these people coming together from a variety of different walks of life, exchanging ideas and just moving the world forward. HBS is a little bit, it's a microcosm of that. You have doctors, lawyers, engineers, veterans, you have all of these people with very, very different experiences coming together and you just learn so much more from those people. Whereas sometimes, you know, I found in medical school and in residency, you know, the types of people were very, very similar in the sense that, you know, they knew when they were three or four years old that they wanted to be a surgeon. And that was that. I do think broadening the aperture of what it means to be a medical student or a resident or a doctor in the 21st century is, is exactly what's needed. Some of that is just absolute mindset. So I think we're aligned there. You know, th this has been such a fascinating conversation. I think to finish off, I wanted to get your sense of how you really diligence and investment. You know, when you're listening to hundreds of pitches in the healthcare, in the health tech space, what is your gestalt of what an interesting pitch is? You know, our last guest, Kyle Dempsey, who is a doc and HBS grad and now a partner at MVM Capital. He mentioned clinical unmet need, product differentiation, large market, great team. Those were you know, some of the things that he mentioned as things that he looks for, but everyone looks for slightly different things. And he's in growth equity and you're in venture. What do you look for? And, and what advice would you give docs who are thinking about entrepreneurship and are just starting out in the ideation phase? Absolutely. And I won't disagree with any of those things you mentioned in terms of what we're looking for, but I'll try to add a little bit more color uh, to how we think about it. So fundamentally, you know, first, when we're thinking about investment, uh, we don't come in cold at GSO Ventures. You know, the point of all this training, we take deep theses in certain areas. So for myself personally, you know, mental health, you know, Medicaid, as we've talked about on this call, 
And we're coming in with our own knowledge, our own understanding of the space, our own understanding of what problems might be interesting. So some people call it, um, you know, uh, a ready, a ready mind uh, for when we're ready to see a health tech pitch. Now, something interesting you mentioned, you know, a team is so important. And when an entrepreneur is presenting a pitch, you know, what are the things that stand out? So, for example, you know, when I'm thinking or looking at a company in the mental health space, I've spent a lot of time in this space, we made a number of investments. You know, when the founder is walking through his story, why they're selling their product, what's the need, you know, am I learning something uh, from, from that person uh, in the course of our call? And, and when, when I am, when there's you know, a unique insight, when there's something I haven't heard before, when I've already been prepared and read up in the space, you know, that is interesting. That's compelling. That starts to kind of change my thinking. Or you know, when, when I push back and we start to have a discussion, you know, it's always easy to have a very pretty pitch deck and walk through all your story. But for the you know, entrepreneurs out there, you know, make sure you're ready you know, when I kind of challenge some of those assumptions, ask you some questions. You know, why are you doing it this way? You know, is there really an unmet need in this area? How does this compare to the other solutions out there? You know, be ready for, with very specific answers uh, for the choices that, that you've made. Now, it doesn't mean you need to have an answer for everything, but, you know, how can I get into your brain and how you're thinking about the problem? And again, in that, in that process, are you teaching me something new um, in the course of our call? So that's something kind of very specific that, that we look for um, and that we think about when we're seeing a new pitch. One of the fortunate things, at least uh, with, with healthcare for the entrepreneurs out there, is you know, market size is such a huge, uh, you know, important criteria for venture investing. Fortunately, in healthcare, most markets you look at when you think of our healthcare spend across the US are absolutely massive and will even be able to support multiple companies in this space. So usually, not always, that, that's not uh, the most important criteria. Now, specifically for kind of physicians out there and thinking, hey, I want to start a company you know, I want to think about, okay, what do I need to understand and what do I need in a pitch? I'm going to be able to raise money. The thing that many physicians specifically you know, under-focus on is the business model. People don't, people say, hey, I built this product. It's better. It does things more efficiently. You know, I like it or my patient likes it, but don't take the time to think who pays for this? Why? How does it fit into the current incentives of our system? And not just, hey, it just creates more value. So someday someone in a value-based care model is going to pay for this. No, there needs to be a strategy and there needs to be a plan for how you can grow the business and get paid in our kind of broken and scary healthcare ecosystem today. So when I, when I lecture, you know, first year medical students to come in, you know, on digital health entrepreneurship, that was the last thing on my mind when I started medical school. I didn't care about the financial side of it. I didn't care about the business model. I just wanted to understand, is there rigorous clinical data and can this help? And I think for physicians, you, we need to kind of get that message out that if you're going to you know, make impact at scale, it has to somehow fit into our current healthcare ecosystem, at least in the early days, so you can start to get scale and grow. And so, you know, really understanding how does the business model work? And at least from our perspective, if we look at our own portfolio of companies for the ones that succeed, you know, you don't want to have to squint at your business model. You don't want to have to say, hey, well, in these systems with these incentives, maybe we'll reduce a little bit of uh, cost and we can kind of share some of that savings while you know, in an ideal world, that, that sounds great. Fundamentally, the simpler the business model, the simpler the understanding for how you're going to get paid for that digital health solution that you have, the better off your business is going to be. Thank you, Justin. That's very, very insightful. A couple of follow-up points and reflections on what you said. I think it's important for people to know that when they're pitching something, like you said, you can go through pretty slides, but most of the meaningful conversations are probably going to happen in follow-up with the follow-up questions and back and forth. But it's important that if you don't know something, 
I think it's totally fine from my perspective to acknowledge that you don't know it and that and say that you'll actually get back to the investor or whoever you're pitching to. I think pretending to know all the answers when you don't probably won't fly, especially when you've seen thousands and thousands of pitches. And as an entrepreneur and as a CEO, you're not going to know all the answers. You're going to have to lean on your CTO or your man on the man or woman on the ground. And so being able to humbly acknowledge when you don't know something, but being curious enough to find out and dig deep into that is, I think, even better than just knowing everything from the very start, because there's no way you can know everything from the very start. The other thing you mentioned, which was really insightful, is I always think that physicians can bring a lot to the table when investors can bring a lot to the table if they have a medical background. But you need a combination of, I think, medical background and business acumen, right? Clinicians tend to index on clinical data and understandably so. But a very, very thorough analysis of the business model, like you said, and sort of the current and future incentive structure is really what's going to make or break the company. And so having that broad aperture is, again, very, very important. It's sort of a recurring theme for us. But Justin, this has been really, really fantastic uh, conversation. Those are all the sort of main questions I had. Just finishing off, you know, how can our audience member learn more about you, the wonderful work you're doing at GSR Ventures and beyond, uh, and how can they just follow your progress and interact with you? Absolutely. And thanks, thanks for having me here. Hope, hope this was useful for, for anyone out there listening. Um, in terms of uh, reaching out, you know, the easiest way to reach out is you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter um, and, and, and connect with me, if, especially you know, as physicians interested in making a jump in te- technology or startups or venture. I'm always happy to have a conversation and fundamentally believe the more of us you know, who can work together to kind of push this crazy you know, boulder up the hill to kind of change our healthcare system, make it better, um, you know, we, we need everyone we can. So you know, reach out to me directly on, on Twitter, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, my emails justin at gsrventures.com. So always happy to have a conversation with people trying to make health, healthcare better for everyone. Thank you, Justin. And, and again, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Alex, that was such an awesome discussion with Justin. There's a few insights that I've been thinking about that he mentioned, but let's discuss some of the main takeaways. And I want this to be really helpful in a practical way for physicians who are looking to start their own company and maybe actually pitch to investors, how should they actually think about strategizing during pitching? Because it can be very important. So one tip is create a very compelling narrative. So much of a company's success is beyond the technicals and the pretty slides. It's a narrative on the founder's journey and why he or she is compelled to leave a previously, quote unquote, stable career and jump into what's inherently riskier uh, venture. Justin actually mentioned that when he finds a unique founder story or hears a unique insight that he's never thought about during one of these pitches, that immediately gets his attention. And so think about how you can present your story in a, in a differentiated way. There's always something that makes us unique. And so just lean in on that. And another thing is, I think, being able to engage during the question and answer period when investors challenge you on your assumptions, either explicit or implicit assumptions, can be very important, right? Because it can show that you, A, think on your feet, B, have actually thought about this in the past. Uh, Of course, if you don't know uh, the answer to something, it's always better to say that you'll follow up with an answer rather than just making something up. Of course, that can be a deal breaker when it comes to investing because trust is so important. But being thoughtful about what types of questions 
uh, or challenges you may face during a pitch meeting that can help you plan in advance uh, for something like this. So overall, create a very compelling narrative for yourself and for your startup. Make it interesting and insightful and know your stuff in and out so you can hold your own during Q&As with experienced investors. So that's my takeaway. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, no, that's a good one, Chad. I think from my side, what I liked about the conversation is the point that we've mentioned around not letting anyone put you into a box. And what I mean by that is I think there is a natural human tendency to follow stereotypes or to categorize because it just makes thinking and decision-making easier. And so I think that pushes a lot of people to think that there is only a specific career trajectory that you can follow if you pursue a specific qualification. And I think my takeaway that I want to highlight is that Justin is actually an example of the opposite example of that. So he did the computer science uh, bachelor's, then he did medicine and an MBA. After that, he started the company in the AI and autonomous vehicles space. He exited and went into a VC. And I think a lot of people tend to think that if you have a medical qualification, like you, you should start a company in healthcare. I think what Justin's trajectory um, illustrates is that you should follow your passion if you feel that you are passionate and you can innovate in a specific category or a specific industry outside of medicine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And people have done it successfully, for example, Justin. And so I think that that was a powerful takeaway for me personally. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Justin and looking forward to next ones. For the audience out there, remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you soon. <laughs>